From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Friday the 8th of October, 2021. Whilst much of the world begins the transition to normality, Hong Kong has doubled down on a zero-COVID strategy in an attempt to achieve the as-yet undefined criteria which will allow an open border with China. In our latest podcast, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss the brittle nature of zero-COVID and the lack of evidence and potential harm caused by recent public health decisions around quarantine. They also discuss the dilemma around vaccinating children and giving booster doses. The risk-benefit calculations of both these interventions change depending upon long-term public health strategy. As Dr Owens is currently in quarantine following his recent return to Hong Kong from overseas, this interview was recorded remotely and therefore at times is not of studio quality. Well, Ben, it's been a few weeks since we last caught up and Hong Kong is staying at zero COVID. How are things looking from your perspective? I think we've done pretty well in Hong Kong. We've had no cases in the community for quite a while now. There's been a couple of scares since the end of the fourth wave, but no community spread. I think that's good. That's a, that's a long stretch of time at zero cases. It would have been much worse if there had been COVID in the community. Uh, now, as vaccine coverage gets higher and higher, and as we, we wonder, looking forward, what, what's the plan next? I think we, we do have to anticipate Delta coming into the community sooner or later and being difficult to control. But right now, I think we're in a good position. Yeah, we talked before about the longer term view of living with COVID. And it's been some interesting research over the last few weeks, looking at it as a disease post-vaccination. It does seem that it's a sort of different illness in the vaccinated than the non-vaccinated. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's much milder in vaccinated individuals than it is in unvaccinated individuals. But in general, vaccination takes the teeth out of COVID, makes it a much less concerning infection for most people and a much less of a threat to public health. So I think it, all, all the public health measures over the last year have been justified because of the, the threat posed by COVID in an unvaccinated population. But in a highly vaccinated population, I think the equation changes. COVID doesn't pose so much of a threat anymore. And maybe some of the measures aren't, aren't as justified anymore as they once were. Yeah, I looked at some data recently. It was interesting. I don't know if you seen the Danish data, but 97% of the population over the age of 60 have been vaccinated there, which is really fantastic levels. If you compare this with some of the other European countries, it does seem that Denmark's doing that bit better. I guess you know the countries Denmark, Norway, Portugal, that seem to have the most positive impact in terms of sort of dampening down on the epidemic, they really seem to have very high levels of vaccination especially amongst the most vulnerable. How does that speak to where we're at in Hong Kong, do you think, where 15, certainly less than 20% of the most vulnerable are vaccinated? I think it's going to be a challenge for us. Do you agree? I think that's right. I think certainly what's, what's important is high levels of immunity. And the best way to get high levels of immunity in the population is to have high vaccine coverage. Now, in, in some other parts of the world, they're going to have immunity in their population from vaccinations and also from infections. But in Hong Kong, we don't have that. We have less than 1% of our population having had a natural infection in the past 18 months, very low levels of natural immunity, and now increasing levels of immunity from vaccination. Still, we have a little way to go, I think, to, to get as high as, as some of the other places you mentioned. 
But I think it is possible. And if we can get to that high level of vaccination, then then COVID doesn't pose a serious threat to public health anymore. And I think that's the point at which we, we could think about relaxing some of the measures as we've seen Singapore, Australia, and then just very recently New Zealand talk about doing that, that when the vaccine coverage is high enough, there's really no justification to keep all those those measures in place. Yeah, I think the question of course becomes how high is high enough? And that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, looking at the Singapore data, I think they're doing pretty well, actually. Just over 100,000 cases now. And what if we look at deaths, it's just over 100. So the infection fatality rate is tracking at about one in a thousand, which is pretty low in comparison to many parts of the world. Um, health systems still coping. 98% of infections are asymptomatic. I think we've got a lot to learn from Singapore. I, I think we're keeping a very close eye on, on what's happening in Singapore. Uh, it looks like in Singapore, there's some people a little bit nervous about about relaxing the measures and they're step by step gradually learning to live with COVID. But I think what's happening there is what would be expected, that there is going to be quite a bit of transmission in the community. Infections generally mild, very few serious infections, but not zero. There will be some serious infections. I think there will be some more deaths, uh, unfortunately, in Singapore. But uh, unless they plan to, to keep the zero COVID approach going, then sooner or later that will happen. It's called an exit wave, and, and it's happening in Europe as well, happening in the United States. And there's there's not an awful lot that you can do about it. You can postpone it, you can put it off, but um, I don't think it's possible to completely prevent it. Yeah, this is a challenge, isn't it? To educate and to get people to appreciate and understand that ultimately there are going to be deaths from this disease. It's really a question of how many and over what time frame, what degree of public health controls are acceptable in a population to dampen down those deaths. I mean, we could presumably significantly reduce the number of deaths that we see from influenza and from other illnesses if we locked ourselves down. So it's really a question of what's acceptable. And I'm not sure that that choice has been communicated quite so well at the moment. No, that's right. And and for Hong Kong and and China, it does seem as though we may be continuing with the zero COVID strategy for a while. So that's good for public health. It means there won't be infections, won't, won't be very many infections, will be a very, very small number of COVID deaths in the coming months, even the coming years. But there's a lot of costs associated with that, economic costs and social costs. So I, I, I think that probably, I don't know, we've talked about this before, David, that, uh, that there's pros and cons of both approaches. But my opinion has been quite consistent that once vaccine coverage gets to a high level, there's not a lot of public health justification to keep all the the control measures in place because COVID doesn't pose as much of a public health threat as it did before vaccines were available. But there may be other considerations. And if there are economic advantages of of staying at zero COVID with a zero COVID strategy with the hope of one day opening the boundary with the mainland, and that's a, a major benefit, then I can understand that. But I think there's also a lot of cost to that kind of strategy. Yeah, I mean, somebody made a comment after one of our recent podcasts and basically said, you guys are saying the same things every month. Why don't you talk about something different? I guess I've got a little bit of sympathy with that position because we have both been arguing that we need to follow the evidence and we both believe it's pointing towards living with COVID as really the only long-term sustainable solution. And talking about evidence... I'm sitting here in a hotel, actually, on my fourth day of quarantine, 
How evidence-based do you think the 21-day quarantine is? I've spoken about this quite a number of times in, in the last month or two. I don't think there's any scientific evidence justifying a quarantine of 21 days. I think 10 days is already sufficient. 14 days is more than enough. And I think getting to 21 days, that, that's when really there's, there's doing more harm than good in the third week. We have seen a, a small number of cases arising on day 19 in the past year in, in Hong Kong. But I think those cases are not long incubation periods. They're either someone who's previously been infected who tests positive uh, uh, periodically called a repositive or a long-term intermittent shedder. There's at least one or two cases of within hotel transmission. And I, I really don't think there's any justification for a quarantine longer than 14 days. I guess my suspicion is that maybe it's one of the measures used to control numbers because we have a limited number of hotel rooms for on arrival quarantine. And by capping the, the number of hotel rooms and also having this long period of time that people have to stay in quarantine, it does cap the numbers. But in Australia, they do that another way by just saying there's a limit every day on how many people can come into to Australia. I don't think it's a it's a good thing to, to be doing in, in the coming months, the coming year. In the short term, I understand that the need for caution but if we continue having very long quarantines for people arriving into Hong Kong, I think is not going to be good for the economy of Asia's world city. And I, I, I've said repeatedly that 14 days is long enough. Yeah, I think also it's probably not going to be very good for our reputation as a, as a world centre for evidence-based public health. You know, we have a situation, we've actually had a number of patients who have clearly contacted COVID overseas, but because they've become infected within the 21-day window, that's, you know, for some reason, it's become this outer deadline. Their direct contacts in Hong Kong have been isolated in quarantine and, and, and sent to Penny's Bay. I mean, this just strikes me as being illogical. Uh, it, it's, it's an example of the sort of heuristic biases. I mean, this would be the status quo bias. We've become focused on, on 21 days, which is set in the narrative. And, and we're not prepared to change that, despite the fact that the evidence doesn't support it. I'm not aware of any evidence for 21 days as an incubation period for COVID. And the vast majority of literature I've seen suggests that 10 days is the window, especially with Delta, which has a shorter incubation and then of course the other side is the viral shedding how long are people actually infectious for and there was that paper from Malik's team a few months ago that showed it was rare for people to excrete live virus beyond eight days but of course we can pick it up on PCR testing so just because a test is positive doesn't mean that the virus is is alive and and that the person is infectious so I just don't think we have any evidence for 21 days. Are you aware of any evidence? No, I mean, even after a week after exposure, is, is uh, most people that get infected will, will have shown symptoms or, or had virus shedding by that point. Within 10 days, it's almost everybody. Very few, very few after, after 10 days. I'm reluctant to say never because you, you can never say in, in an extreme case. But uh, I've seen some reports on the news as well of people that go away to to the US or somewhere in Europe and come back after a week or two, test positive, and then because they there's a, a possibility they contracted it in the US or, or Europe where there's a lot of COVID circulating, 
But also there's a possibility they contracted it in Hong Kong because that was within the 21 days, even though there's no cases in Hong Kong uh, for the past months. And I, I think it's, it's uh, over the top. Uh, I think the Department of Health would use the word prudent, but uh, I think there's a lot of other things that could be done out of prudence that aren't being done out of prudence. And I, I don't think it's sustainable for Hong Kong in the long term. For now, I understand that we're still getting the vaccine coverage up to a higher level, still looking at whether there's really a chance of, of opening the boundary with the mainland if we satisfy all of the, the conditions that, that we imagine they've set. But I, I, I don't think it's really sustainable in the long term. We've agreed on a, a lot of things over the last few months. And one of the things we maybe had a slightly different perspective on was vaccination for children. You were always a little bit more supportive of this and I was a little bit more cautious. But I think the evidence is accumulating. And I think generally the evidence is bearing you out, isn't it? That, you know, I mean, firstly, we're, we're doing it worldwide regardless. But we are accumulating increasing evidence of safety, albeit with the recent reports of myocarditis, of heart inflammation occurring in some children, especially boys, and especially after the second vaccination. How are you feeling about vaccinating children now? Do you think it's going to be something that's going to be done worldwide? Yeah, I, I think around the world, we've seen the risk posed to adolescents. I saw in the news recently, in the United Kingdom, there was a, a teenage girl who died of COVID on the day she was scheduled to receive her first dose at school. And that was very, very unfortunate. Of course, it's very, very rare because mostly COVID in children is, is mild, minimal symptoms, if any symptoms at all. And I think there's been a lot of children have had COVID in, in the UK and in Europe, in the United States. We've seen very, very few deaths in that group. But still, COVID isn't a nice infection to have. There can be long COVID as well. I, I think it does make sense to offer vaccines to to people 12 and up. Younger than that, I'm not so sure. I know that Sinovac is licensed down to age three, I think, in the mainland. And the Pfizer have just finished their trial in, or, or they're, they're, they're halfway through their trial, I should say, in, in younger children. But in that age group, there's even fewer serious cases of COVID, even fewer cases of long COVID. And I think we have to weigh up the potential risks of vaccination with the potential benefits of vaccination. In Hong Kong, it's a slightly different situation because we're doing the zero COVID strategy. So I'm, I'm, I'm really supportive of vaccination. I, I really encourage everyone I know to get vaccinated. Both my two teenage sons have had the, the COVID vaccination, had two doses. But I think we do have to revisit the risk and benefit calculation for Hong Kong. And unfortunately, it was just recently reported by the Department of Health that among the 100 something thousand, I think 140,000 children in Hong Kong between the age of 12 and 17 have had two doses of the BioNTech vaccine. And among those 140, 150,000 children, there were 30 hospitalized cases of myocarditis reported. And that's a significant number that there might be one or two coincidentally. This does happen from time to time for other reasons. But the majority of those hospitalizations would have been because of the vaccination. And at the same time, because we don't have any COVID cases in the community, the benefit of vaccination at the moment is minimal. Now, if, you, if we were saying that in the coming months, we're going to relax the measures like Singapore, we're going to have COVID. And so you, you need to get your, your vaccination before that happens. Now, that, that would then be a clear potential benefit in the coming months. 
But if we're changing direction to say in Hong Kong, we're going to keep COVID out, we're expecting a minimal number of infections in the coming six months, in the coming year, then actually you've got to weigh up the potential harms and the potential benefits. And if there's a potential of, of an adolescent getting hospitalized after vaccination, and the benefit is more difficult to see because we're not expecting any COVID, then I think we do have to revisit that. And I think that's a, a sensible decision by the Department of Health to go back down to one dose of BioNTech for now for adolescents because uh, with this with the second dose that, that triggers this myocarditis in some rare cases. Yes, I saw a preprint from the US which was talking about it. They were reporting around about 160 cases per million adolescent boys after the second dose. Uh, about 13 or so in females, so much more common in boys. So it's not insignificant when you think that we're talking about a mortality in that age of around two per million or maybe three per million. So it's a difficult risk-benefit decision, isn't it? We saw in the UK the Joint Committee on Vaccination actually came out and advised against vaccinating children, and, and I must say I tended to support that decision at that time. Uh, the chief medical officers disagreed uh, and, and so it was decided to vaccinate. So it's a nuanced decision. It's a difficult uh, distinction to make. It's not absolutely uh, clear what the right decision is. Yeah, I think in the end, in the UK, they decided to give one dose, not two doses, or one dose for now, and then they'll decide later whether to give the second dose. I think that makes a lot of sense because it's it's after the second dose that there is this this potential risk of myocarditis. It's a very, very low risk. So I, you'd have to really do the calculations to, to look at the risk of the side effect versus the risk of uh, the, the benefit provided by vaccination in terms of the, the cases averted. But in Hong Kong, where we're having a zero COVID strategy, I think it's a different calculation. And I, it occurs to me that might, we might also want to do the calculation for people in their 20s, even people in their 30s, because if we're not expecting very many cases and COVID's a, a mild infection, typically in that group, then there is a different calculation for, for harms and benefits of vaccination. Now, of course, if we're planning to relax like Singapore, then uh, I, I would certainly hope to get as high vaccine coverage as possible but if we're planning to stay with the zero case approach then uh, it's maybe a slightly different calculation and then now we've got this issue of third doses where there's some enthusiasm in the community to get a third dose but uh, again if we're planning for zero covid strategy it may not be the right time now to, to do third doses if we're if we're going to wait another six months or 12 months or longer before we we think about relaxing the, the public health measures Maybe that's also the timeline before we think about third doses, given that they're, they're not urgent right now and there are side effects from any vaccination and, and maybe it's something that we can't give too often as well. So if you have a third dose now, maybe in six months or 12 months time is, is too soon to have a fourth dose, but the immunity from the third dose has come down. So there's, a, there's kind of different calculations. It's kind of unique, actually, the situation in Hong Kong. The data from Public Health England and some of the US data as well is, is very interesting to me. It suggests that immunity is holding up pretty well in, in most people. Maybe we're losing it a little bit more quickly in the elderly and we're losing it a little bit more for mild disease, but it seems to be holding up pretty well for hospitalization and more serious disease. And, and I guess the reduction in the elderly is to be expected, really, isn't it? So we are starting to see booster doses given international given at different ages, but predominantly targeted towards the older age group who are less likely to maintain their responses. But I guess the point that you're making is 
if you don't have any disease in your population, you don't really need to have that extra dose. Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of my own population group, 90% of our patients were vaccinated by the first week in May. So we're getting towards six months post-vaccination. I'm sure I'm going to start having those conversations with people. Look, you know, we did the right thing. We got vaccinated early. And now we're less protected. I mean, what, what what's that all about? How would you answer that to somebody who's you know, done the right thing, so to speak, who's taken the vaccine early and it and is now approaching six months post vaccination? Yeah, I mean, l- looking back, I I wish we'd had a, a clearer discussion about the long term policy earlier. Because if the government had announced maybe six or nine months ago that we're planning to to keep with zero COVID for the long term, then I may have been less enthusiastic about promoting a high vaccine coverage so that we can return to normal. Because I think that that's why many of us were very supportive of vaccination, because vaccine provides a pathway back to normality. But if the decision had been nine months ago that we're not going to go on that path, we're going to keep COVID out then uh, there's a different risk-benefit calculation for vaccinations. And I think we, we still would have prioritized the elderly, but in other age groups maybe could have delayed for a while. Now in, in the, the OTMP practice population, I, I would imagine there's, there's quite a number of people who are going to be looking to travel. And for that group, the third dose, particularly if they're older, the third dose could be a benefit. I wonder whether there'll be there'll be a possibility for that in the coming months, recognizing that the people in Hong Kong do still want to travel despite the the quarantines on return. And also going back a, a few minutes when you mentioned that the issue of people coming back, I would certainly recommend that if people are traveling, they travel for, for three weeks or longer because with the risk of COVID, when you travel, if you come back too soon, then it's a, there's a serious implication for your your family members and your your close contacts in Hong Kong before you left, uh, that they may be going to quarantine. But I think we're, we're, we've got a new normal now in Hong Kong, but it's not the new normal that we were expecting. Uh, it's a different kind of new normal that, that maybe we hadn't anticipated. Uh, and that's got a lot of other implications for, for policies, uh, I guess. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? If you're going to live with zero COVID and try to eliminate the disease, you may take one course of action. The risk-benefit of vaccination, particularly in younger people, changes. You don't necessarily need high vaccination because you're not going to allow the disease in. You're going to have public health controls until you're under control. But of course, in a true zero COVID environment, you wouldn't have masks, you wouldn't have restrictions on going to school because you would be dealing with zero COVID. Life would be back to normal. On the other hand, if you're trying to get into a position where you can revert to normality, you want to encourage a high vaccination, you need a clear policy decision that you need high vaccine coverage, especially in the vulnerable. And we seem to be sort of betwixt and between, not really with a plan that, well, frankly, with a plan that makes any sense when we look from a long-term public health perspective. Yeah, I, I don't completely understand the logic. I mean, firstly, I don't understand the logic of persisting with the zero COVID approach when there don't seem to be any benefits to Hong Kong of doing that. I know there's the theoretical benefit of being able to open the boundary with the mainland that a lot of people would be enthusiastic about and happy about, but I'm not convinced that that's going to be possible 
given that we still don't really understand the criteria and the conditions that would be needed. I've seen the reports in the media about the types of things that are that are discussed without any very clear details. Very recently, there was a the suggestion that patients with COVID might need to stay in hospital for 21 days, even if they are clearly recovered much earlier than that. And I think one of the other things that's going to be controversial is the introduction of the health code app and the health code framework, which is is kind of like leave home safe but it's not voluntary, it's mandatory, and you need to use it everywhere, not only in in restaurants and and so on. And I think that that's going to be controversial if we really do decide in Hong Kong that that we're going to introduce that with the hope of then persuading the mainland authorities to to allow quarantine-free travel across the boundary. But uh, there there may be other conditions coming up as well. Uh, We've seen in Macau, they have had the benefit of that open boundary for, for a while. But also from time to time that they, they've had to shut because of outbreaks on on either side. Just recently, there's been another outbreak in Macau and they've had to close it again. And I think that may happen to us in Hong Kong that if we do have a boundary open with the mainland, it may be fragile. It may be open sometimes, but also close some other times. And at, at the same time, I think there's a lot of people in Hong Kong who are looking forward to, to traveling. I, I saw the interview in Bloomberg with Bernard Chan, where he said that uh, many of his friends wanted to, to travel internationally more easily. But he also understood that there were there was a silent majority in Hong Kong who didn't care about international travel. Uh, I'm not sure that there is such a silent majority. There may be, but uh, from what I from what I understand, there was a lot of travel prior to COVID. A lot of Hong Kongers were traveling a lot in Southeast Asia and around the world. And that's all stopped because of COVID. One of the difficulties is separating the political decisions from decisions that are made in the best interest from a public health perspective. Uh, I saw a couple of interesting papers in the last week, and I think I made a throwaway comment last time we talked that maybe Delta was going to be the boosting dose for the world. But I think there's some really interesting antibody data that I've seen that suggests that we know the BioNTech is really good, but BioNTech plus natural COVID infection is significantly better. And it seems that the best immune response is going to be via natural infection. Of course, we know that natural infection increases risks of long COVID and it also leads to severe disease. But if we can have vaccination and subsequently those natural infections provide the boosting dose, it may well be that this is evidence in favour of of a sort of sustainable plan of living with COVID and that the best thing may actually be to vaccinate to a high level and then allow the illness to fill in the blanks, so to speak, to give us a population immunity that will bring us to that level of herd immunity. How does that sound as a theory to you? Well, I, I would think the ideal is to get such a high vaccine coverage that the disease can't spread anymore because you have such a lot of immunity from vaccinations but the reality is that the vaccines have have risks as well as benefits and so if we were to consider giving multiple doses to people so not only the two doses of biontech but then a third dose even a fourth dose even a fifth dose in the future to get really high levels of immunity that might end up doing more harm than than it does good and if you contrast that with a strategy of giving two doses and maybe a third dose to the elderly and then if or when covid does spread in the community is giving that extra boost to the immunity without very serious disease that might end up being the optimal strategy i think in, in a public health sense covid really doesn't pose a major threat anymore after 
you have a high vaccine coverage with at least two doses of a good vaccine. And, and so the, there's less justification for, for the government to put in a lot of measures. If individuals still want to take preventive measures, it's up to them. But uh, for the government level, uh, I think that there's less justification for, for all these measures once vaccine coverage is high. Okay, well, thanks again, Ben. Um, I'm sorry to the listener who gave us some criticism for saying the same thing because we're sort of still saying the same thing, I'm afraid. But let's hope eventually we'll move forward. And we're both pretty clear in the view that at some point, whether it's by planning or whether it happens despite our plans, the virus is going to get in and we're going to have to manage the illness associated with the virus. And hopefully have as high a vaccine coverage, especially within the most vulnerable members of our population. Hope everything's well with you and uh, we'll catch up in another month or so where I will hopefully be released from quarantine. See you, David. As always, the links to the papers in this podcast, including further articles expanding upon the issues discussed, are available on our website in both English and Chinese at www.otmp.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe, and please feel free to comment. Thank you for listening.